and welcome back to Activity Quest, the podcast that's packed with stuff to do. In today's episode, we're transporting ourselves back in time to the Second World War. Robin is going to Bletchley Park, a once top-secret location where codebreakers in World War II went to decode enemy secrets. Plus, we've dug out some recipes used in the war during rationing, and we'll be putting them to the taste test. My name is Bex, and every episode of Activity Quest starts off with a presenter doing something awesome. So have you ever thought you'd make a good codebreaker? Because today Robin is at Bletchley Park, where during the Second World War, Alan Turing and other secret agents decoded enemy secrets. During the war, the Germans sent coded messages to each other with information on where they might attack next. So people at Bletchley Park had to try and decode the messages to find out if they could protect the British and Allied forces and help bring the war to an end. Experts have suggested that the Bletchley Park codebreakers may have shortened the war by as much as two years. Robin is at Bletchley Park exploring their new exhibition, The Intelligence Factory, to find out more about the codebreakers. Now, this is in Milton Keynes, not far from London, actually, and it is huge! That is my first impression. It is huge. There's so much going on here. But we're going to catch up with Erica, who's going to tell us a little bit more. So when you first enter the exhibition, you realise pretty quickly that you're actually where they used to decode all the messages. So there's two huge screens that you're greeted with with some really, really cool imagery on it. In fact, you might be able to hear them. Now on these screens, there is actual World War II footage. Can you hear the planes going above me? Wow. So Erica, in terms of a day out here at Bletchley Park, what can we expect? From when you first come in through admissions, you buy your ticket and they'll send you through the barriers. And there are around 10 uh, main exhibitions, permanent exhibitions that you can see. And there are, those are different sizes going from a small gallery area to room after room after room, like our new exhibition, The Intelligence Factory, which takes around half an hour to get through. I'd say it's a full day here as well. So you can spend as little or as long as you like, because obviously your ticket gets you in for the whole year. But I recommend giving it at least half a day if you want to get a number of these areas under your belt and get a really good sense of what Bletchley Park was about. Because it takes so long to get around, we do want to make sure that you are fed and watered and looked after. So we have two large cafes here. Um, one does mostly soup and sandwiches, one does hot food, and it's gorgeous. I go there for my lunch, even though I really shouldn't. It's obviously not going to be good for my waistline every day. <laughs> but during the summer, we have a kiosk selling ice cream as well. We do an afternoon tea experience as well. So if you wanted to really make a day of it, you can um, order afternoon tea in our large mansion dining room and just sort of show the family a lovely decadent time with your afternoon tea um, there are also spaces outside for you to have your own picnics during the summer we have deck chairs we have picnic benches we've got areas that you can sit and relax in the park underneath the trees as well or if it's a little bit rainy and a bit dismal we have spaces all around the side that you can take shelter as well and uh, then pop to the cafes for a nice hot cup of tea um, we've got absolutely loads of loos on site, including accessible loos and baby changing areas. And all the areas on site are wheelchair and buggy accessible. We have no stairs that mean you can't get up to a certain area on the, in our exhibitions. So everywhere in that way is that, uh, physically accessible. 
so Erica, we are currently in the exhibition and we have this really cool big room with a huge projector. What is it? What's happening in here? In the showcases that are right in front of you, there are some survivors of World War II paperwork, actual code-breaking documents with enemy messages written on them and some notes that Bletchley Park's code-breakers wrote about how they decoded them. And what we can see on the wall ahead of you is big pictures of enemy ships being blown up and tanks and soldiers. And we're making the connection between these two things. So what you can actually see on these documents, although they're in a lot of gobbledygook because they're in code, are the information that the Bletchley Park codebreakers used in order to help the commanders in those places win the war. So where we have a document that shows uh, information about a submarine's route, for example, that was deciphered by Bletchley Park codebreakers and the information sent to the commanders in the field. And the film that you can see on the wall is that actual enemy action happening where a bombardment of a harbour um, happened and yet the codebreakers found out in time that this was happening so the fleet managed to escape and uh, and survive to fight another day or where there was a, an enemy submarine wolf pack descending on a convoy which was bringing really necessary supplies from America to the UK and this attack was about to happen but codebreakers worked it out from a message again sent out the information and the convoy survived and didn't get attacked that day and so we wanted to show people coming in the real effect that somebody just sitting in an office working on a bit of paper scratching their head and struggling with a puzzle what kind of impact that can actually have out there on the front line huge impact and it's really nice to see it like translated Mm -hmm. so what we can see in here is that actual code that happened yeah you'll see all throughout the exhibition pieces of paper or bits of um document or archive or photographs of these as well of real things from World War II with code with enemy codes and ciphers on them and with real decoding notes as well. Wow that is so cool well let's get going then head on through. made our way into this room that from what I can see looks like it's got lots of drawers with lots of like really cool cards and and little notes inside can you explain what's happening imagine all the information that was being received by Bletchley Park once they've managed to decipher messages they were keeping all of that information because it will all come in handy in the future if you're a wartime code breaker yeah. it might help you decode a future message or make sense of something and so one thing not many people know about Bletchley Park is they have these massive indexes all written down by hand or typewriter on index cards or long lists of information and so what we show in here is some examples of those cards and lists uh, we have some in gobbledygook some in kind of plain written English as well, some in books and some on sheets of paper. But we also, in the corner, have a slightly different looking display, which is a data centre. Now you've had a look in, you can see it's as far as the eye can see, it's a bit of magic trickery that we've done to show a long corridor in a data centre in a small corner of our exhibition. And that's because we want others just to understand that the challenge that Bletchley Park had of saving all of this data, which is what it was, 
still exists today. And big companies, such as the lady that's talking to us in this interview from BAE Systems, struggle to store a huge quantity of information, which they do digitally in data centers, which is the equivalent of millions and millions of these cards. And at Bletchley Park, they must have had millions of cards as well. But just the challenge of not only storing that information, but how on earth do you find it again, is a very real one. Yes, I bet. And also, I'm just kind of looking at it, and I think that you can kind of get more of an understanding when you see it physically, how much information is obviously held onto that you kind of can't see, you know, in the kind of data centre of today. But I think it's um, it's a little overwhelming, isn't it, when you think about it? It is. And it's the type of information that Bletchley Park teams were, uh, were storing. Things like the names of ships, the locations of ships, the number of crew, the number of bullets that each gun stored on that ship had. They were keeping track of all of this stuff. The number of men in a military unit, the number of bicycles they had, the location of them on every single day for the last four years. It's absolutely mind-blowing that all of this stuff was being kept and used. So I noticed as I worked through the exhibition is there's these sections on the wall called memories and basically it is those people that are still alive today that have told us about the memories that they have when they worked here at Bletchley Park. So you can actually have a little listen to them through a really cool old phone. Yeah, it has a wire. I can believe it. So as we've carried on through the exhibition, Erica, I come to a wall with a huge map on it and it looks to me like it's interactive. What's happening here? This room is the plotting room and this is a space where we wanted to show a typical job that took place in here, which isn't just all about code breaking and codes and ciphers and thinking really hard. Yeah. It's actually a job that young women did. Women aged about 19, so young yeah. girls really. And they would plot the locations of enemy and allied British and American ships on these huge maps. This room is the actual room where that took place. We still have a floor plan of the building and we know that this room was filled floor to ceiling with giant maps. And these young women who worked in the Women's Royal Naval Service were pinning these locations of these ships with pins and string and logging where all those ships were so that they had the most up-to-date information. The interactive map that you can see is our attempts to let people have a go at pinning some of those locations onto a map. We obviously can't have sharp pins and strings on our visitors, but this is the next best thing where we're asking you to try and find the coordinates that you're, you're given some information about an enemy location, and you find those coordinates on the map and you pin the right ship into the right place on that map. That is so cool. And also as well, I feel like those young women would have loved this technology, right? Yeah, I think so. And also, it's it's a pretty boring job that they did. I can't lie, not everything at Fletchley Park was glamorous and codes. Some of it was just repetitive work, maybe operating machines or maybe pinning things onto walls. Yeah. But it was all a huge contribution to the war effort. So you can actually get involved and, and, and have a go at doing that job yourself. Yeah, and we have the North Atlantic, we have the Mediterranean as well. And so so there's loads of options for people to come in and try and have a go and see how good they would have been at being a plotter. Let's see how good you would have been. <laughs> 
So what does Bletchley Park do now? Because I imagine there's not so many messages to code at the minute. Not so much. We are no longer a government organisation. Yeah. We are a heritage attraction. Oh, cool. And we still have buildings here that were standing in World War II. Some of them were already here and the code breakers came and took them over, like our mansion. Oh, wow. Some were temporary that were just built at the start of the war, thinking the war will be over really quickly. We'll just pop them in these wooden huts. Those are still standing as well, incredibly, so many decades later. And it's our job to try and keep those huts standing and in as good condition as we can. So there were also brick buildings, permanent buildings put up in the second half of the war when they realised that it wasn't going to be finishing quite so soon. And these buildings were huge. The workforce grew and grew. And so from a few hundred people here in 1939, the workforce by 1945, at the end of the war, had grown to nearly 9,000 people working 24 hours a day on shifts, almost like a factory. Wow. And so our new exhibition here we've called The Intelligence Factory, and it tells that story of how the site grew and grew into a big intelligence producing organisation. So we've obviously heard about all the exciting things there is to do here, but if we do want to come along, where can we find the tickets? I would say go to our website, www.bletchleypark.org.uk. That's got information about ticket prices and you can buy your tickets online as well. You can find out a bit more about what we've got going on here, our events. We're always running things like half-term activities and family activities, trails. We've got online events as well. And it gives you the most up-to-date information about our exhibitions and all the news about what's going on at Bletchley Park. Oh, what an amazing visit. If you want to head to Bletchley Park or go on any activity quest, just tell us at funkidslive.com slash activity quest. And remember to rate, review and follow this podcast wherever it is you're listening to it. Now, did you know of nearly 10,000 people working at Bletchley Park in 1945? 75% were women and few were older than 24. Women were also involved in the war on the home front, including feeding their families while the men were at war on rations. Due to shortages of food caused by the war, rations were introduced. So every member of the public was issued with a ration book. They were books which contained coupons that shopkeepers cut out or signed when people bought food and other items. This was to make sure that of the very limited supply, everyone got a fair share. Throughout the war, lots of things were rationed. What foods do you think would have been rationed? Some of the main things were bacon, ham, meat, butter, cheese margarine, milk, sugar and treats like biscuits and jam. This meant that many recipes people would have used weren't possible because they didn't have many of the ingredients. And of course, people had to get inventive and change recipes to use ingredients they had. Meg has found some old recipes from the wartime that she's going to cook up for us today to try. Do you remember during the pandemic when we had shortages of certain products in shops? Remember when we couldn't get flour or maybe tin tomatoes? There was different shortages throughout the pandemic. Now, during the war, they had a similar ordeal. Food that would normally be imported was being stopped by the German forces to try and put pressure on Britain. So one of the things that the government introduced was rations, which meant that everybody got their fair share of the small amount of luxury goods that were hard to get, such as butter, sugar and eggs. This meant things like cakes and sweet treats were going to be really difficult to make. But luckily, some inventive women came up with recipes that were using other products that were in less short supply. Now, I'm going to try two recipes today. These were actually used during the Second World War. People made these 
because they stopped you using certain products that were very hard to get. So the first thing that I'm going to make is a potato scone. So a scone normally be with like jam and cream and it'd be made with eggs and butter and a lot of sugar and flour. This recipe only uses four tablespoons of self-raising flour, so a lot less flour than a normal recipe, one teaspoon of baking powder, half a teaspoon of salt, one tablespoon of margarine or cooking fat, and sometimes during the war when they would really struggle to get margarine, they might use something like lard, which we don't typically cook with, but was easier to get when there were shortages, and then four tablespoons of mashed potato. So you've drained it, then you've mashed it with nothing at all. No butter, no margarine, no milk. Remember, we are really short on those ingredients in the war. So the big thing here is that we're using half potato and half flour, which is a bit different, but potatoes are really easy to get. So you mix together the flour, the baking powder and the salt and then rub in your margarine and then add the mashed potato until it's light and creamy and then form a soft dough. You can add a little bit of milk or in times when milk was really hard to get, you could also add a tiny bit of water. Then press it into a round, slice it into six, roll those six into balls and brush with a little bit of milk on the top. And then you want to bake it in the oven for 20 to 30 minutes until golden brown. So this is for our potato scones. So while our potato scones are cooking, I'm going to start another interesting recipe. So this is called carrot fudge. I've got to be honest, I've never thought what my fudge is missing is carrots. And when I looked at the ingredients for this, I thought, well, this doesn't like fudge at all. If you're making a normal fudge, you'd use vanilla, sugar and butter and maybe a little bit of something like treacle or syrup. This uses 140 grams of carrots, which I have already pre-grated. 100 ml of orange juice. Now, sometimes orange juice would be hard to get. So when orange juice is hard to get, they'd use orange squash, orange cordial. So you can use 100 ml of orange juice for this, or you can use 30 ml of orange squash. You need 140 ml of water, or if you're using the squash, then you want to use 200 ml of water, and one tablespoon of agar flakes, or a gelatin leaf. This is what makes jelly jelly-like. So I'm looking at this recipe, they used it in the World War, I've never made this before. And it's got carrots, orange juice, and something that makes it jelly-like. I'm not really seeing how this is gonna become a fudge. It's got no sugar in it, and no butter in it, so... It's not even got vanilla in it. It's sounding very weird at the moment. So the recipe says I need to put the carrots and the water in a small saucepan and then cook gently for 10 minutes. So I'm just going to stir that on the hob for 10 minutes. Then I need to add my orange juice or my orange squash and cook for five more minutes and then turn the heat down to low. Remember, when you're doing any recipe, it's really important that you have an adult with you because obviously we are using the heat from the hob, so make sure that you have an adult with you to help. Now, once it's got down to a low heat, I have been told to add my agar flakes and stir really well and often until they've dissolved, okay. It's kind of looking a little bit gloopy. Hmm. It looks slimy. It's not really that appetizing. Um, I guess in the war they had to eat things that they wouldn't normally eat. I'm not sure anybody would be swapping their fudge for this at the moment. Right, so I've got a flat container 
and the flakes have dissolved and now I'm just going to pour it into that container so it is flat and leave it to cool for 10 minutes before putting in the fridge to set. So while we watch that set, my scones have just come out of the oven and they, they look quite dense. Um, they don't look very fluffy at the moment. I'm just going to break into one. It kind of does taste quite nice. I feel like I put a little bit of jam on it, but it tastes quite savoury. I don't know if it like would be better with other things. It's nice though that it's like better than I was expecting. I think that you quite enjoy this. If you like mashed potato and you like scones, or if you like potato cakes, mm, yeah, this is pretty nice. I think it would be good with any topping. I'd say this overall is a success. I sound unsure, but it is a success. Okay, now. Let's look at my carrot fudge. I'm just going to slice it. It really does look like thick jelly. Yes. Mm, it doesn't taste like fudge. I don't know how to describe it. It tastes more like kind of like a carroty jam. So you get like a jelliness and then you get like pieces of carrot in your mouth. I guess if you like carrots and jam, maybe. I think I would call this carrot jam. I feel like this might taste better on taste. So, in my opinion, it is success for the wartime potato scones. However, I wouldn't be making the carrot jam again. It's not even carrot jam. I wouldn't be making the, the carrot jelly fudge thing again. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Um, how do you fancy trying some of this carrot fudge then, Bex? Hmm, I think the word fudge is a bit misleading there. It's more like carrot jelly. I'm going to be honest, not my cup of tea. I think I'll stick to a bar of chocolate. Unfortunately, chocolate was rationed. Um, so you're basically on carrot fudge or nothing at this point. Yes, I think I'd rather have nothing, actually. Uh, can I try some of the potato sponge? Go ahead. I actually think this one's really nice. It's actually quite nice. Oh, it's, it's not as fluffy as scones normally are. It's a bit like an Irish potato cake, but tougher. Weird, but I don't mind it, actually. Yeah, I think a lot of people would have had them with gravy, too. I saw in the comments um, some people who had lived through the war were saying that they ate these with gravy as well as with things like jam, because jam wasn't always available. So they're kind of like a dumpling, right? They're kind of like a cross between a dumpling, a scone, and a pancake. I don't know, but they're pretty nice. So if you want to have a go at these recipes, let us know what you think. Mm, that does make sense. And now remember, there's lots of episodes of Activity Quest that you can go back and listen to any time. Just scroll back in your podcast app and pick an episode you fancy. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you might enjoy our episode from the 7th of February, where we created and decoded our own codes. I'm Bex, and this has been a podcast from the UK's children's radio station, Fun Kids. Listen to Fun Kids on your DAB digital radio, online, on the free Fun Kids mobile app, and on your smart speaker. Just say, play Fun Kids. Bye. (laughs)